The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Um, I definitely appreciate the invitation to be here. Uh, I don't think, I really don't believe at least, that you all have any idea uh, what an encouragement you've been to my family over the course of a number of years. Uh, Tim made reference to how long we've been acquainted. That's absolutely true. Uh, I can remember one of the first times meeting him face to face. He came down, I think, was a part of a bathroom floor replacement that took place at Mama's house. He and Ronnie and Alton, and all three of the brothers, came over to replace that in exchange that if they got it done, they could go fishing. And if I remember how that went, they were gone by about nine that morning, which is much later than they normally would leave. But they did a really, really quick job on that, and it was pretty thorough. I didn't have to replace it for a number of years after that. But this congregation does mean a lot to me. Uh, the association I've had with you goes back, I don't know how long, it's, it's well over 10, 12, maybe even 15 years almost, even prior to Tim coming, I think I was acquainted with you all. I've preached many a time from that floor right down there uh, when I was holding or wearing, I should say, an IV bag. And sometimes when I got lazy on that, I'd step to the side pew and hang it off the pew <laughs> to preach. That was my rocket fuel at the time, and it kept me moving. And you were a tremendous encouragement by allowing me to do that. I realized looking back, I may not have had the strength I needed to, but I definitely had the emotional support and the spiritual support, more importantly, to be able to do that. And then since that time, I've preached here and spoken many, many times. I've got a little brown book that I keep up with uh, where I kind of jot down where I've been and what I preached and when I preached it. And there are over 100 congregations that I have been able to account to in that book, which I think is a good thing for me. It's been an encouragement. Uh, but there are several pages of front and back that exist, and they're all labeled the Logan Martin Church of Christ. So that just, just to me, just speaks volumes that you've been such a tremendous encouragement over time. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you don't mind, with me, the book of Hebrews. When you get there, go to Hebrews chapter 11. I understand the entire series, to some extent, is kind of founded and grounded in Hebrews 11. And uh, my understanding as well is you may be doing some character studies. At least that's the one I was assigned here concerning Noah. You know, I think back, and I did my research supposedly and tried to understand this. It was approximately, on our calendar at least, about May the 17th, the year was 1656. Now get this, AA, uh, which was said to be after Adam, also known by, a, I guess, a Latin term or something like that, Anno Mayone, which means the year God created it. And so at that time, that's when Noah and his family supposedly walked on that ark. That's been so many years ago, so many thousands of years ago, but the impact that he had, not just on his life and his family's life, obviously, because he is memorialized in this great list, Faith's Hall of Fame, it's often called, continues to impact us. And so when discussing the topic, which I told Tim earlier, I got a little bit wrong. I've been accusing Tim for over a month of having kind of a silly topic. I won't tell you what I thought he said. Uh, but I was planning to twist it anyway, but the topic, I understand, has something to do with Noah. It has to do, obviously, with his faith, and it has to do with the fact that he was able to obtain salvation because of his faith. 
And in my mind, that's precisely what Hebrews 11 and verse 7 tells us. And we're going to use that as our springboard. And also, in addition to that, we'll use that for our entire outline, if you want to kind of understand it that way. But here's what it records. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. You may notice that particular verse, if you will, that sentence structure as we have it translated into English, in one sense is simply bookend by the word faith and concluded with the same. And I think what that involves is that everything that is mentioned, and this is very brief, especially in comparison to the next characters we get into, such as Abraham and such, I think that says a lot. It speaks volumes to the fact of just how powerful, how settled, and how set Noah's faith was. If you think about that account, we won't even have time to read the entirety of it, but we will reference it several times in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. You think about that account, you have to understand that Noah and his family lived at a time that was extremely difficult. As a matter of fact, as frustrating as today may seem to some of us, Noah's day was much more difficult. According to what scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 6 specifically at least, we learn that Noah lived in a time in really an age in which corruption, violence, perversion, generalized sin, and wickedness reigned the day. Everything that he and his family was exposed to during that time, at least according to the way God saw it, and that's the only way that really mattered, had to do with men and women committing things that were sinful in God's eyes. And so I want to take this verse, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. I want to break it down into about four equal parts. We'll do our best to get through all four of them. I'll go ahead and give those points to you so you can kind of keep those in mind. And really, that's not just so you can keep up. That's so when I don't finish, you can say, well, he meant to say this and so, okay? So the first thing we're going to notice is that his faith existed, at least it was founded in the salvation of it was discovered because of the warning that he believed. The warning he believed. And you say, well, Jim, where do you get that? Well, that's that first phrase, Noah being warned of God. In the second place, we get to it, we'll move a little bit farther and we'll talk about his faith and the salvation he obtained because of it. And that attributes itself to the work that he achieved the work that he achieved. If we make it through that, that may be doubtful. Then we'll move on to the next point that's sustained by the next phrase or so, and that is the wickedness that he perceived. And Noah knew that that was wickedness around him, hence he was not willing to participate. And then the most important we'll skip to if we have to to get there, his faith was founded and his salvation was founded in faith because of the wealth that he received. Okay? So let's go back to the book of Genesis. I hope you'll turn there with me looking back. Genesis chapter 6, where again, we're not going to be able to read or understand it all, but the gist of the account basically comes down to the fact that God looks down upon the earth, chapter 6, and He sees that the thoughts, the intents of even the hearts of men was evil, quote, continually. We learn in the context of that as well that God determined, verse 6 of chapter 6, that it had even repented the Lord that He had made man upon the earth. We learn in verse 7 there that God promised Noah and all the inhabitants of that time that He would in turn, in return for that, destroy the entirety of the earth. We find out in the next chapter that was by the waters of the flood. 
But we learn most importantly in verse 8 of chapter 6 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, verse 9, because he was seen by God as being a just man and, quote, perfect in his generations because he, quote, last phrase, walked with God. So when just making mention of that, back in that first phrase, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, chapter 11, telling us that Noah himself was able to be saved in this way, we discover the fact that it was a warning that he believed. You know, when Noah was approached by God, context here of chapter 6, 7, 8, and forward, when Noah was approached by God, Noah was told directly from the mouth of God that he would be destroying this earth. Now you put that in the context of the way that God would destroy it. We know in hindsight, looking at the rest of the story, that he would choose to do that by way of a great flood. Now the evidence seems to prove, and that's my disclaimer, see these quotes, seems to prove from Genesis chapter 2, just a couple chapters back in verse 5, it indicates at least that up in that point, verse 5 reads, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not, watch it, caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not no man to till the ground. So indications may lead us to think that it had never rained upon the earth. Some scholars go on, and the text goes on, as a matter of fact, to talk about how God in, in turn watered the earth from the dews of the ground, the things that lifted up. Some even believe there may have been a canopy, kind of a, a um, what do you call that? Uh, I just went blank on that word, but a greenhouse type effect that kept the world watered as God was doing it by that way. And so when you think about Noah who received this warning, you have to understand the warning he received to him perhaps and to every other man at the time and me if I had been given the same would not have made a lot of sense. But why did Noah believe him? There are basically two reasons in my mind. Number one, it was because he in this case resided in the Word he took the Word of God as what it was, and that was the absolute Word of God. Now, when you think about the word, word, W-O-R-D, the word, word, you have to understand that when you look at the language that comes forth, whether it be from the Hebrew in these cases, or even forward in the New Testament, the Greek languages and such, that all of those words, W-O-R-Ds, are backed up by the language that God inspired those things to be read. And God has always been thorough in the way that he revealed himself. For example, the word, W-R-D, word, is backed up by basically three terms in total. And each one of them gives us a little bit of perspective, a little bit more characteristic as to what God has tried to and attempting to get across to us. For example, in the first case, you have to realize God oftentimes speaks through what I'm calling the scripted word. The scripted word. Now the word that backs that up, and by the way, I speak Munford Greek, it's not Grecian Greek, so it won't sound just right to any of your ears, but nonetheless, the word that backs this up is a Greek word, graphe. You say graphe, what is that? That's exactly what you're looking at. If your Bibles are open, or you're thumbing through a phone, or however you're accessing that, you're looking down at these pages, mine are black and white, happens to be one of my better copies, most of mine are more like yellow and black. But the black and white pages that we're reading, that is the scripted word of God. 
And the way we understand that and the way that that is backed it up, for example, you might recognize this passage from Romans 15, 4. Here the Bible says, For whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, so that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That's the graphe. That is when we look down upon these pages and we read them. Now, in Jesus' day, that would refer mostly to the Old Testament. But when we read these pages that contain with them, whether it be the Pentateuch, the first five books, you look at the laws, the prophets, other things, you look at all the writings of the New Testament, whether it be the Gospels or the Epistles or what have you, even the letter of the Revelation toward the end of that, that is the graphe of God, the scripted Word of God. And that is in one sense, now that's going to be my key here, that is in one sense the main way through which you and I receive the Word of God. You say, hold up, preacher. Now, I've heard this many times before, and I've never heard anyone try to describe to me how we receive the Word of God any other way. Notice what Jesus said, John 5, verse 39. It's the same indicator word given there. Jesus spoke of the Old Testament specifically then, and He told some disciples of His to, quote, search the Scriptures daily, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testifies of me. Again, that's the graphe. That's the scriptures. That's the written, the scripted word to which you and I have access. But that's not the only way. And as a matter of fact, that's not even the way by which Noah received these things from God. You say, how can you prove that? Noah didn't have a Bible. Noah didn't have a scroll. Noah didn't have, to our record at least, any written, recorded, scripted language, graphe, by which to receive anything from God. So how did he do it? Well, there's yet another term, and this is something I would call the spoken word, and that's not the graphe, that in the language itself sounds something like the rhema of God. Now the rhema of God is that spoken word. It is that vocalized word. It is where God come down as we read across it here. You can look back up as to what it was said uh, about Noah. God said, verse 7, chapter 6, God said, I will destroy man um, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. Who's he speaking to? To Noah. And when he speaks to Noah, he used that spoken word, which for us is represented as well in the New Testament. If you look in the Ephesian letter, Paul writes to the Ephesians there, but by the breath of God, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, he tells us when he's speaking of the whole armor of God, quote, that's the end of it. He says, to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, that is in this case the rhema of God. You see, you and I, we look at that and we kind of bounce that off of the accounts, such as Mark chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 gives an account as well of the time when Jesus was in the wilderness. Remember when Jesus was rebutting back towards Satan, Satan was challenging him. He was in turn answering those challenges back and forth. Jesus went about doing that and you and I look at that and say, well, look at that. Jesus used his Bible to answer Satan. Well, no, no not with that again. Jesus quoted Scripture. And Jesus surely knew Scripture and certainly had access to at that point at least a part of the Old Testament that was available. It was studied daily in the homes of the Jews and others. 
But the word that is used there is not that. The word there speaks of Jesus and says that he used the rhema of God to answer him. That is, he wasn't using the scripted word. He was using, in turn, the spoken word. Well, somebody says, well, still, there's a little blur right there. Because you and I, we don't pill our heads at night and awaken with a still, small voice in our ear, having God speak to us. Or you and I, we're not driving down the road there at the red light, and suddenly we hear a booming voice from heaven commanding us of something that we may not know about God already. True. But you see, it's not just the graphe. It's not just the rhema. There's also something we know as the logos. What is that? That's the sustaining word. That's Jesus. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we hear there these words is recorded and translated for us. For in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the same was with God and the same was God. You drop down to verse 14 of that same context, John 1, and it says, And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us as we beheld His glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, there's the tie. When you and I take this, this scripted Word, and we in turn put it together with an understanding that it is really the spoken Word of God on these pages, then we're able to receive the the sustaining word, the Logos, the Jesus of this Bible. That makes no difference. It makes no difference whether you're reading something that's penned in the very first verse in speaking of God having created the heaven and the earth or whether you're reading the very last verse which ends in general with just the word translated as amen. It makes no difference from page to page. You are hearing the word of God as it is scripted as it is spoken, but more than that, as it is sustaining to us. And what we know about that is very simple. And that is we understand, as the Scriptures tell us as well, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Logos of God. When Noah received the warning of God, he received it because he heard the voice of God that was delivered to him in God's way. There is absolutely no way possible that any man, woman, boy, or girl, you might even say that, will ever hear from God save they're willing to study and examine and more than that, to allow his word to take over their lives. That's what made a difference for Noah. Not that he heard God, but that he heard God and that he lived that out. That's one thing. But when you think about the warning that he believed, not only was it the fact that this warning was residing in the Word of God, go back to Genesis chapter 6 again, it not only resided in the Word of God, but also we learned that it resulted because of the fear he had for God. You remember that account? I'll just look back to it and quote it again to you. So it says there in Hebrews 11 and verse 7, Now, but by faith Noah being warned of God as things not seen of yet, moved with fear. What made Noah do what he did? Fear 
I've seen this argument come up many times in person. I've seen it on social media, which is the worst place to argue anything biblical, by the way. Been there, done that. That's not very much good. But I've heard the argument before. Someone will say, wait a minute now. Uh, I don't want to be afraid of God. I don't want to have anything to do with being fearful of God. And they'll even quote one passage. I kind of jotted down here in my margin. They'll even quote uh, this fact, and that is the... Uh, if I can find it in my margin, it was here a moment ago. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. Perfect love casteth out fear. And so they'll step back and say, well, there it is. You know, you ought not fear God because in fearing God, you're missing out on His perfect love. Is that absolutely true? If so, then answer this. Why is it the Apostle Paul recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What's Paul talking about? Paul uses the Greek word phobos, where we get our English word phobia, which is a shaking in our boots type of fear. Somebody says, but wait a minute, that's, that's, a, that's, that's totally out of context of God's character. It's out of context the way we ought to treat God. We should not be afraid, fearful, shaking in our boots before God. We should be only respectful, that's fear as well, before the throne of God. Are the two so far apart they can't be understood? This time of year, near our house, you can walk just a few feet just past my yard line, and, and even at times it's happened inside of those boundaries, and you come across a snake. Rattlesnake, copperhead, cottonmouth, they're, they're all there. We've got a creek across the street. They're all there. If I approach one of those poisonous snakes, and I get close enough to them to maybe that rattlesnake to hear that rattle or to see him visually there on the ground, and he's coiled up, and the rattler's going, and the head's up, and he's ready to strike... I'm afraid. And it's not shaking in my boots fear. It's leaving my boots where, it, where they were fear. Why? Because I respect what he can do to me if he chooses. There's God. Not in a snake skin. But God in the understanding that we fear him, even if that means at times we tremble at his word. But we always respect Him for the outcome and for the decision He has over us, even in judgment, to cast us into heaven or a devil's hell. I've heard it worded this way before, and I appreciate the sentiment of it. I, I, really, I really feel this way as well myself. I would much rather scare someone into heaven than to lull them into hell any day. I want to get past that. I want to be past that in my Christian life as to where I'm not just being scared out of hell. But at the very same time, if that is what it takes, I hope that no one who ever reads this word can pillow their head at night for the fear they have of God and His judgment. Now, when you understand that just a step farther than that, just go a little bit farther than that in our minds, we have to understand how important this was to Noah in his day. I don't flip and flop much. I'm mainly going to try to keep you between Genesis 6 and Hebrews 11. But I do want you to go with me for just a moment to the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 3. 
Romans chapter 3. When you get there, we're going to have to break into a context. I, pre, I uh, apologize for that, but I want you to begin reading with me in verse 10. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Here's how the scriptures read. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now watch this starting in verse 13 especially. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. Now look at it, verse 18. I've got this highlighted. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What, is the, what are these people's problems? What are the problems of the people in Noah's day? What are the problems in the people of our day? Because for me, verse 13 to 17 read like the morning newspaper, which we never get out of the box because it never comes anymore, but they have no fear of God. You say, well, Jim, what in the world? That ties together, that Greek word phobos, also with the respectful side of things. How many things are going on in our world and were going on in Noah's world in his time are coming about because people fear God? Not nearly enough. How many things are occurring in our world and in Noah's world as it was that are occurring as a lack of fear? Because people are looking to God and they may as well be shaking their proverbial fist in his face and saying, God, I can live my way. I can live and do the things that I desire because that is my will. The issue with that is it's not his. Fear is extremely important to why men serve God. Do I want you to, to go to bed at night, every night of your life, forever, especially as a child of God, not having confidence, not having courage, not having boldness to stand before a storm? No, that would be anti-biblical. As Uncle Franklin Camp used to say concerning at least John 1, you ought to know that you know that you know that you know. You should. You should be secure in your salvation, in the knowledge that you put into, guess what? The rhema of God. Into the knowledge you put in sense to the graphe of God. But more than that into the logos. The God of God, Jesus. Number next. Not only do we find salvation in Noah's house. Not only because of the fact that he had heard the warning of God. And believed it. But secondarily, he likewise, he did the work of God, therefore achieved it. Looking at the text again, Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, watch the next phrase, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Are you saying, Jim, that Noah did something? 
to obtain salvation for he and his house. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because it's precisely what the word of God says. Now some argue and they say, well, wait a minute now. If salvation is, is anything accompanying with works, then it cannot be salvation at all and it cannot be that free gift. And they quote passages that they cut short, just as Ephesians, uh, the text in Ephesians 3 and such, and they go on and on for days and months and years about how, how glad they are that their salvation is not based on anything they do or have done or even would do. When at the same time, that same quotation they're using where they don't bother to go to verse 10 or 11 or anything else, they also did not read the previous chapter which said in Ephesians 2 and verse 10 that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Was Noah saved by listening to God, hearing God? By taking in that case the rhema of God and saying, well God, I, I hear you loud and clear. And I know what you desire, but God, I cannot work for you. I cannot do what you ask. No. Hebrews 11, I promise you this, and I have no idea who all the speakers are. I don't know all the topics. Uh, we didn't get a flyer either. Well, we probably did, but I didn't get a flyer. It's on the church probably board. I promise you this. Every single week you will hear the same. Their faith was brought forth in works. Because their faith is a type of faith that some describe as having legs on it, and it always includes obedience. Noah obeyed God. Now look back with me to chapter 6 and 7 of the Genesis account and learn a few things about this. When you think about it, you understand what he did. He understood what, what he understood something that James hadn't written yet. Remember the text, James chapter 2 and verse 20? Faith without works is dead being alone. No one knew that. No one knew that if God asked something of him, he would in turn be required to do it. Look at, look at what he told him. Now in chapter 6, we already reviewed this a little bit. Chapter 6 and verse 7, the Lord promised him, I will destroy the earth that I have created. You drop down and across the page, you find out that Noah, yes, verse 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You learn that verse 9, he was a just man and perfect in all his generations. You learn that God continued to reiterate with him for the rest of that chapter at least the idea that these men on the earth, all of them were corrupt in what they did. They were violent. They were exceedingly violent. And then you learn that God gets down and says this, verse 14, begin with. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. I'm in chapter 6. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. And room shalt thou make in the ark. Thou shalt pitch it within and without. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be as 300 cubits, approximately 450 feet. And the breadth of the ark shall be 50 cubits, approximately 75 feet. And the height of it shall be 30 cubits. Verse 16, And a window thou shalt make in the ark, and a cubit thou shalt finish it above. And the door of the ark shall thou be set in the side thereof. 
In the lower second and third stories thou shalt make of it. And you go on and on. And he repeats again there, verse 17. Now, I will bring the floodwaters upon the earth. Was he specific in what he commanded Noah to do? Was Noah specific in his obedience to that? Well, according to verse 22, he was. Verse 22 of chapter 6 says, And thus did Noah, according to, the biggest word in the text is the next one, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. All that God commanded him. Noah, are you telling me that you worked to do what God said? Yes. In a huge way, even physically. Say, well, there, there it is, Jim. That's where it, it kind of goes off the bridge there and into the water because he may have worked, but he didn't earn salvation. No, sir, my old mammy didn't. But his work proved his faith that did. And it meant something to God. Let me give an illustrated comparison here. We've got Noah on the one hand. We already looked at a few of the verses that are involved in such. For example, verse 7 and 1 says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come ye into all thy house, and in the ark, for I have seen the righteous before me in this generation. We already saw that he had been called just in the sight of the Lord. We've already seen that he had found grace in the sight of the Lord. We already saw that he had been obedient to all that God commanded. That's what Noah did. And the context of chapter 11 and verse 7, and remember the phrase is tied directly to the fact that it says he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Faith saved Noah. The building of the ark saved his entire house. His influence. His example. The things that he sat before his sons and daughters-in-law. That made a difference in their lives. In contrast, there's a man named Lot. L-O-T, Lot. Genesis 19 gives us kind of the end of his account as far as what we really learned from him and more than that, his family. Now, what had happened with Lot, Lot and Abraham, they were kinsmen, and they had been traveling together for some period of time, and they arrived at a place where they both determined and knew within themselves there was not nearly the supply, the grasslands, what have you, to keep their flocks. And so Abraham being the better man, which by the way I love to be, try to be Abraham for this characteristic and many others, Abraham looked at Lot and said, it's your choice. We'll just do it your way. The church would abound internally if, if every person could look to the other and say, let's just do it your way. Don't, no worries about self. But he looked at Lot and said, you make your choice. Lot chose to, quote, pitch his tent toward Sodom. Keep reading in the account, Lot goes into Sodom and the cities of Gomorrah and other outlying cities. He ultimately finds his place. We're not sure what this means, but it seems to attend to the fact that he became some great citizen of that place. He was seen outside of the gate as if he were some type of a judge or some type of an important person there in the city filled with sin and perversion. So much so when the angels warned Lot that he would have to leave. 
And he in turn looked at his sons and sons and daughters-in-laws and begged of them to leave that place because of the lifestyle he had participated in. They did not even want to go. God takes a lot and his wife forces them, I guess. I don't know how it worked out. That's my disclaimer. I ought to say, I don't know. I just don't know how. He brings them out of the city, sets them down outside of the gates, he rains fire and brimstone upon it, and his wife, Lot's wife, turned around and became a pillar of salt. And the New Testament tells us, remember Lot's wife? Why did Lot not save his house? Because his faith did not work. He did not practice, as we would say, what he had apparently earlier in life preached. Do you think he hung out all those years and lived and dwelled with Abraham without picking up something from him? No. He did. But he didn't live it. Now that's not to claim, and I'm not, please do not misunderstand me as one of our instructors. You say, don't quote me from your notes. That is not to say that if any of your children ever end up being lost in eternity, that it comes down to being absolutely positively your fault. But God forbid I stand in judgment and see one of my children lost and me have to wonder if it was. Noah's faith saved his house because he worked. Would to God that every man and woman upon this earth would see us doing the works of God. Number next. Hebrews 11, verse 7 again. Rereading it. By faith Noah being warned of God, as things not seen yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark, to the saving of his house. Why, why did Noah determine? Why did he do that? Well, the next phrase says, and therefore became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. What did Noah see? Now, I mentioned it earlier in the introduction. You already knew this. If you knew anything about the account, Noah lived in an evil, perverted, corrupt world. Again, chapter 6, it says in verse 6 that God repented. It repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. The preceding verse says, And God saw, verse 5, chapter 6, And God saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. And the, watch this. Every thought, every, I should say, imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Was God right? Is that true? It has to be. You say, well, surely someone had a good thought. Someone had good intent. Yeah, his name was Noah. Now, I don't know how true this illustration really bears out, but you, if you've raised children, and I've raised, well, I'm raising a total of five. I've kind of got two close. One I hope we're done. But we, we'll never be. We, we. 
But you ever known of a teenager particularly say, well, everybody else is doing it, Daddy? In Noah's case, that might have been near about true. Again, this world is described as corrupt, violent, evil continually, to the point that even the thoughts and the imaginations of their hearts were that. They spent their waking days thinking of ways to do evil. But Noah, Noah was different. What was Noah really dealing with? What was he encountering? Well, a few things that are right on the page. We've pretty much looked at them. One of them is prior to this, however. I would say that Noah was dealing with people who were a part of what I call scientific progress. You say, wait a minute, how is that? Well, go back to chapter 4, just a moment. Just, just one verse out of chapter 4. Look at it with me, what, we, what we're seeing here. Verse 17. This is speaking of descendants, direct descendants, not descendants, what do you call that? They came before him anyway, those guys, of Noah, one of which was named Cain. You recognize the name Cain? We have Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, many other sons and daughters. We have the generations. Verse 17, chapter 4, Genesis. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt, I'm, I'm, re, I'm, I'm on 16, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after one of his sons, Enoch. Was there progress in that day? Yeah. I, I probably, probably mistakenly, maybe, maybe you have, I don't want to accuse that on you, you're, you're not as ignorant as myself, but I've thought and pictured Noah and, and the ones especially that preceded him almost like cavemen. Now we know better biblically. We understand that better. But Cain builded a city just a house, not a hut, not a small dwelling with a mat in the floor. He built a city. Noah's not dealing with people who were doing what they were doing because they were ignorant or ignorant. They were pretty sharp. He dealt also with a secular philosophy. That's my next little phrase. We've read across that a few times in verse 5 and 6. God knew that, quote, every imagination and thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. That is, they built an entire philosophy around that, and it was all secularly based. Which, by the way, this is my uh, uninspired, non-divine commentary. That may be why Cain built a city as well. He built a city because it supplied his physical needs when his spiritual needs weren't met. When he'd been cast out of Eden, or cast, no, his parents had been cast out, he in turn had murdered his brother, and in turn was definitely living toward the land of Nod in that place. Similar to today. There was sexual perversion in that place. Verse 5 and 6. You say, well, I, I can read that real quickly, and I'm, I'm a better reader than you, obviously, most are in this room. But how would you say that? Because in Luke's account of Jesus speaking, Jesus spoke of the days of Noah and compared them in a direct parallel to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, it speaks of that and ties it to his second coming and talks about they were neither married nor given in marriage. Why? Because they were finding their sexual fantasies in, without outside of marriage. 
And then there were social plagues. Verses 11 through 13, the earth, verse 11 in chapter 6, was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Of all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. That's His circumstances. But what was His communication? He preached. Peter, in writing his epistles, of course, inspired of God to do so. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, as well as 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, make reference to Noah, or Noe, N-O-E, King James translation, and calls him specifically a preacher of righteousness. If you put two and two together and you don't get five like I sometimes do, you may even understand that Noah preached for a long time. Some indications seem to believe, and, and I, I don't know whether disagree or agree. It depends on how many of you want to punch me at the back door, I guess, really, to be honest with you. But it, it may even be that chapter 6 and verse 3 indicates he preached for nearly 120 years. At least that seems to be the time in which God promised the flood in turn and the span of time that came before the flood waters began to fall. If he preached that long. How many souls, this is according to Peter's accounts as well, did he save? Eight. And one of them lived in his own skin. Thanks be to God who those eight were. Thanks be to God the fact, at least, that it included his wife, apparently, and sons and daughters-in-law. But it was still only eight. The lesson, the message, the understanding I get from that, the encouragement on one hand, at least someone who uh, tries to preach, attempts to preach the gospel, is in the fact that he didn't save everyone. Or seemingly that he couldn't. That he did, I assume, the best he could. He was called righteous and just that he did work, that he did prove himself, prove his faith by his works. But he didn't save everyone. But apparently that never discouraged him. Success biblically, spiritually, should not be measured in numbers. One of the greatest blessings that I, I, I learned, I learned the hard way, I'll admit that, but I learned the hard way many years ago. Many years ago. I've been preaching about 21, 22 years. Didn't learn it probably for the first 10. Is that as a gospel preacher, it is not my duty to fill the pews, but only the pulpit. You can't preach, you can't teach, you can't encourage people with only what they want to hear when God did not do the same. What was Noah's message? God's going to destroy the entire world and all of its inhabitants. What was the option he gave to escape that? Get in the ark. 
Well, no, I, I'm a pretty good backstroke. You know, I can, I, can, I can float. Get in the ark. Well, why? That seems so limited. That seems so, so narrow-minded. Get in the ark. No, are you better than us? You're some kind of crazy man? Every time my children walk by, they're afraid because of what you're telling them? You're scaring my kids. Get in the ark. It's God's way. What did that do for Noah? Everything. Noah was found faithful, righteous, and just in the eyes of the Lord. Now to sum that up, what happened in Noah's life? Well, as we went through that, looking back in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 7, by faith Noah was warned of God. That is, he was warned and he believed. Reading on to the next phrase, it says there, and there's a things not seen yet moved with fear. That is the work that he achieved. Reading on farther than that, it lets us know then, and that was under the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world. Yes, that is in that the wickedness he perceived. He didn't cause those people to be lost. He only set a standard of the way they ought to live. But the wealth the absolute wealth that he received tells us there and became the heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Look at the Genesis account. By Noah, verse 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In turn, chapter 6, verse 22, Thus did Noah all that God commanded him. In chapter 7 and verse 1, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for I have seen righteous before me in this generation. Now you say, well, I, I, I can see the emphasis there. I can see the emphasis in the verse. He has seen his righteousness before me in this generation. That's right. He said, yeah, the emphasis, come into the ark. Yes, that's right. But here's the little trick in that. You ever had your mind blown because you studied the Bible over and over again and finally something clicks? God did not say get in the ark. He said come in. What does that imply? God was there. God is there. The day in which you and I live, no matter how disturbing, discouraging, depressing they may seem, are no worser than he is. Not even close. You say, well, I tell you what I need to do. I need to build me an ark. 
I need to build me an ark. And, and by building me an ark, I'll, I'll like you explained, uh, you, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll work before my family and they'll get, yeah, well, sort of, kind of, maybe. Except God already did. Why do we have revealed to us what we do in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9? Because we understand that it is only a picture of the Lord's church as it stands today, built by Jesus. It is in so many ways of types and antitypes and understanding of such, which that's past time to shut up. No way related to the actual physical work that he did, but in every way related to the spiritual picture that God was drawing the whole time. That entire portrait and scene that we read and we study and we examine with so many lessons contained therein draw yet only one conclusion and that is that salvation and safety is found only in the ark of God. If you're here this evening, you're not a child of God's. I hope and pray that to one extent, to one small extent, that you have a level of faith in Him. That is emotionally, mentally, that you can understand, that you can begin to trust who God is and trust that Jesus Christ was that Son of God He's promised to be. And that you can in turn use that faith as the foundation. Hebrews 11 verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Foundation. That you can be willing in turn to take that belief, that trust, that faith. Be willing in turn to repent. You know, God in this case was in some senses repenting. He had made this world. I'm sure Noah in many cases had to repent all the rest of his life. You know, he, leave, he left the ark and ended up in sin. Because he's, 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 he's normal. To change your mind, to turn away from this world and toward God. These are the times and ages to do that. Because they've always been that. Be willing to confess his name. Noah, in every stroke of the hammer, in everything that he did, confess the name of God before these men. And then we even learn from, from Peter's account, this is directly related to salvation because it is, quote, the light figure whereunto baptism doth now also save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience before God. What's your answer? Will you be baptized? Will you make your way into ark, the one that God has built, in which salvation is found, and in that place only? The opportunity is available while together we stand and as we sing.